Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream, our 71st, I believe, Dr. Heather Hying. Is that it is correct? indeed our 71st, which is prime. Prime again, and I didn't see that coming. How could I have missed it? It's There's always more coming. There's always more coming. Okay, before we do anything, before mm-hmm. we get to anything else, I just want to say for those people who are watching this on YouTube, Um, We are aware of the situation with my hair, the need for a haircut. We have a small team of people working on solutions to the problem. And I'm not on the team, apparently. No, no, I've uh, I've kept you out of it so far. If if needed, we will call you in. I think I appreciate that. Um, For those of you who are listening to the audio-only version, my hair is perfect. All right. Yeah, I just thought I'd mention that at the top so, uh, you know, there was no misunderstanding about where things stand. Excellent. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, trees and mood and their effect on mood and lockdowns and specifically uh, schools being closed and sports being out and their their effects on lockdowns and some about uh, some cancel culture going on in music and we might get to polar bears. And uh, you've got a few things to say at the very end of the hour that we'll save. Uh, we'll save, save for then. I think they fit very, very well with uh, where, where, where things are. Yeah. And we would just say, as as usual, um, please consider um, supporting the podcast, supporting us at either of our Patreons, where you can find access to the Discord server and, um, and access to longer um, private conversations. So um, without further ado, should we, should we embark on talking about... Uh, trees and nature. Yeah, let's do that. Trees and nature and mood. All right. So there's this uh, this article that came out on the very last day, I think, although I'm not now seeing that, of last year, called Urban Street Tree Biodiversity and Antidepressant Prescriptions uh, by Marcel et al. And um, the you know very first two sentences of the abstract, actually, I'll just... Uh, Um, I'll read those. Growing urbanization is a threat to both mental health and biodiversity. Street trees are an important biodiversity component of urban green space, but little is known about their effects on mental health. So um, the the very short version of what they found is that uh, people living within 100 meters, 300 plus feet or so, of, of what what are called street trees. This is a, a term of art, I guess, in urban planning, where you know trees on that strip in front of, um, you know, between between residences and or sidewalks and streets. Um, people whose homes are within a hundred meters, three hundred twenty-eight or so feet of street trees, um, have marginally lower antidepressant use. But if you control for socioeconomic status which is to say if you look only at those people with lower socioeconomic status you actually we actually find this this paper finds uh, a remarkable and this is you know this is correlative of course um, a remarkable apparent effect on antidepressant use and so specifically the line is uh, indeed I don't know where it is in the paper, but I have it in my notes here. Indeed under high density of street trees at 100 meters or closer, individuals with low, socioeconomic status had a similar probability of being prescribed antidepressants as individuals with high socioeconomic status. So that to me is kind of staggering that uh, everyone who thinks about these sorts of things knows and is well established in uh, a robust, substantial, and and rigorous literature that 
socioeconomic status is correlated with health outcomes, right? Um, that the richer you are in general, the healthier you are. And of course, there are lots of exceptions to that. But um, there are concerted efforts, you know, good faith, careful, concerted efforts to try to figure out how to break that, that it's, you know, it's very hard to, 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 to break poverty. And of course, there are many people trying to do that as well. But um, there are an, an additional set of sort of public health efforts to try to figure out what, you know, if poverty, what can we do to um, try to ensure, try to make sure that um, being poor does not inherently uh, make you ill, um, unhealthy? And this finding suggests that um, simply living fairly close to trees may may seriously reduce the risk of at least this one measure of health, which is mental health, which is depression. So uh, let me help unpack this here. This is a yeah. paper I have not read, so I'm going to mm -hmm. just uh, riff off of what I'm hearing and see if I can make sense of it. The point is that actually, and so there are obviously multiple levels of entanglement here, and statistics are the tool for untangling which thing mm -hmm. is actually correlated to what, and if done in the context of a proper hypothesis, it allows you to uh, assess what might be causal. Indeed. And what, what we have here is an indication that um, socioeconomic status which is known to have a positive effect on mental health that can be seen in being less likely to be prescribed drugs for depression. As, it, as, as found in other pieces of research. That is not the research that these right. people did. This yep. is, that is uh, a pre-existing research already established mm -hmm. that if we then look within people of socio, low socioeconomic status, that living within, was it 100 meters of... 100 meters. Uh, 100 meters of trees... Um, actually results in them catching up to levels of high uh, economic well-being. So, With regard to not being prescribed antidepressants at um, as high rates as you would expect simply by virtue of their socioeconomic status. Which suggests... I, I will just... One caveat here is that this research did not set out to... did not hypothesize socioeconomic status um, being a differential variable going in. They uh, they knew, of course, that low socioeconomic status um, is tends to be um, associated with, with worse health outcomes. Um, but upon looking at their data, they saw a marginally significant result with regard to proximity to trees and um, not being prescribed antidepressants at high rates across all um, across all demographics, actually. But when they then parsed it out by socioeconomic um, status, that result became um, highly significant. So for the large fraction of our audience that is deeply interested in the philosophy of science, they will spot right away then that what has happened here is that this paper in testing one hypothesis has made an observation which leads to the next hypothesis which is now in need of its own test in order to know whether it is scientifically supported. Mm -hmm. And so fascinating though that what they appear to have discovered suggests the following model which is um, there's something that causes a breakdown in normal function. If we imagine that depression is in some ways a breakdown of normal function, or at least depression that is to the extent that it uh, results in a prescription, um, that that is a dysfunction, and that that dysfunction is uh, triggered by something in the change of socioeconomic status from high to low, and that it can be regained by proximity to trees alone mm -hmm. is 
fascinating, which doesn't say it's the only thing that would do that, but it does say that it's something that we would see. Now, of course, mm -hmm. uh, the thing I'm fascinated by, and maybe maybe the paper addresses it, is that um, some part of us knows that tree-lined streets are good. That's mm -hmm. why they are in the rich neighborhoods, and that is why they are very rarely found in impoverished neighborhoods. It's actually interesting. Um, one thing that they do say, so this, this research um, was conducted in Leipzig, Germany, uh, and um, there is similar but not exactly comparable research that's been done in London that came to the same conclusion, but it was, uh, if, I, if memory serves, that research was different and that they were looking only at the aggregate as opposed to very, very much particular households that are living within proximity to street trees and antidepressant use. Um, but so, the, you know, there's a, there's a growing weight of evidence that finds this. And there is the widespread expectation, and I, I still believe it must be true in many places, that richer neighborhoods tend to have more trees. But at least in their research, at least here in Leipzig, they didn't find that. They actually did not find that the lower income neighborhoods had fewer trees. Okay. But that may, I, I will be shocked mm -hmm. if it cannot be demonstrated in the U.S. Yeah. that uh, the wealthy neighborhoods are much more likely to, to be tree lined or okay. the density of their tree lining is greater or whatever. It's for yeah. lots of different reasons. For mm -hmm. one, I mean, we could probably list a dozen reasons that that should be so. One, people's positive association with trees causes the houses on those streets to be more expensive, which means that people of higher socioeconomic status can afford them. Right. The fact that the tax base is uh, somewhat local is is going to mean that there are more resources to do something that actually costs more, like maintaining trees mm -hmm. um, rather than simple pavement. So there are lots of reasons that you would expect that correlation. Now, what the heck the is going trees on? Okay, sorry, go on. Well, just that you would expect to find them on the fancier streets for lots. And because there are lots of reasons, we have to be careful here that there's not some third correlate and that this has very little to do with trees. Well, that's a possibility. It, it is a possibility. Um, one of the ways that this research uh, differs from all but a couple of pieces of research that came before is that there's been a lot of talking about green space, about the value of green space, about being near, you know, either wild nature, semi-wild nature, parks, etc. And they specifically looked at street trees, which uh, in their language uh, has an advantage in that they can be retrofitted into neighborhoods, that even though you're right, that it of course takes you know some doing to plant them and then some maintenance, and that especially if you're planting the wrong species of trees that would require a lot of irrigation or something in order to keep them going, um, you know, once they're past sapling stage, um, that they would be less likely to persist in neighborhoods where there weren't a lot of resources. But, um, well, that I guess. Yeah. Well, so what I would love to know is, one prediction of this, if if the if the correlation is due to causation, then you would expect that neighborhoods in which trees had been added, that you would see a difference in in historical prescription rates over that time. That would be a great result that would, to have. That would be what's called a matched pairs. Uh, that would be a matched pairs experimental, desi experimental design, which would allow you to specifically say, "Aha, we see a decrease after a decrease in antidepressant prescription." Uh, after the addition of trees in now, these neighborhoods. I will say a um, couple, couple other things. One, intuitively this result I probably sounds more right to you and me than it deserves on its merits. Because, yeah. because this is a complex um, set of phenomena in which trees are liable to be correlated to dozens of other things and therefore it could be something else that's lurking in the data and this would evaporate if you tested the tree hypothesis directly, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
this is more intuitive to you and me because you and I have some kind of, I would argue, um, unnatural level of need for this. I think you and I uh, would accept a huge decrease in quality of life to live in a place that, you know, looked right out the windows. Um, that is to say, um, our values are such that other other changes in quality of life that other people would rank more highly uh, as important to them, uh, we would accept so long as we still had the trees out the window. Yeah. Or, you know, or I would say, and, you know, this is... Um, you alluded to this early, early in this conversation, but there will certainly be uh, ecosystems in in which some cities are uh, where trees isn't the thing, right? Like it's, and it may well be that all humans would, you know, would enjoy seeing a tree. But if you know, tree lined streets on L in L.A., for instance, um, are a different phenomenon because L.A. happens to be in a place that doesn't really natively have much in the way of trees. And so, you know, I would, I would predict that um, access to some sorts of things that would actually be relevant and natural outside of your window um, would do something similar. And, you know, the obvious thing is, is water, yeah. right? Um, you know, coastlines, rivers, creeks, lakes, ponds, um, any of that. And of course, as, as it is, you know, as well, well established, th those pieces of real estate, of course, are always or are always belonging to people with higher socioeconomic status. Well, I want to come back to the question of whether or not we might be on the cusp of a change here as a result of um, what COVID has forced us to learn, which mm. we probably should have known anyway. But, um, but I do agree. I think trees are certainly, if the model that you and I are going to intuit from this is right, then trees are a proxy. It's one of dozens of things that could That's work right. and almost certainly not the best of them, right? So mm. what do you, why? What do you, why do you think that? Um, because, well, personally, I would guess that there is something about the staticness of trees and trees are not perfectly static, especially deciduous trees are, mm -hmm. you know, dynamic at one time scale and, you know, trees blow in the wind and all of that. Um, but that there are lots of things. So if I just take myself as a model, sure. right, it's cool to see trees out the window, right? But it's like a hundred times as cool to see squirrels in the trees, Right, so the, the the dynamism of animals outside that raise questions at a different time scale is, you know, it's positive. Imagine I imagine it has a Sudoku like effect on the mind if you pay attention to the squirrels. Sudoku like effect. That's an interesting phrase. Um, all so I I'm with you on that, but I actually suspect that um, you know, specifically squirrels in trees might be a negative for a lot of people. Um, you know, we've, we've joked about, you know, wanting more squirrels that, you know, kind of wanting squirrel monkeys, you know, even in temperate trees and such. And no, we're not going to go introducing species where they don't belong. But um, I think that, that many people, especially dyed in the wool urbanites, um, can, can accept the grace and beauty of a tree and get a little freaked out by something that's scurrying around in it. Uh, I think squirrels evoke something different for people. But anyway, I'm sure there are some people who... Um, I know there are some people who don't like squirrels. There may be. Um, and, you know, <laughs> the, uh, people who are trying to feed birds often don't like squirrels for other reasons. But <laughs> This is different. You're not hanging out with all the urbanites who really don't like it when things run around and they're not people. Right. I guess that's true. <laughs> but um, but I would also argue that there's something... Um, there is an underappreciated disaster in 
uh, light pollution and noise pollution. Oh, yeah. And so what we don't what we don't remember until it's absent is how different things are mentally when you can't hear a road, right? I was actually so I, I as you know, I, I did Greg Ellis's the respondent podcast yesterday, and it's not out yet, but we were taught he and I were talking about exactly this, the the value of a night sky where you can actually see the Milky Way and the value of a soundscape where you can actually hear the birds or the creek or whatever it is, but it's not the cars or the honking or the, or, or, right. or the anthropogenic thing. Which we learn to tune out. I mean, Ish. not perfectly. <laughs> and you, know, you and I are very sensitive to it because we often go to places where you, you know, we go to great lengths. It turns out that, um, I mean, to take two examples or three examples, um, the field station uh, La Selva in Sarapiqui, Costa Rica, you can hear trucks on the road, which is very sad because in many ways this is a quite intact piece of forest in which mm -hmm. you'll see all of the, you know, including things that require uh, undisturbed habitat, like, you know, Bushmasters are still there. So it's really very intact forest. But and, it, and it's probably one of the two most important uh, field, field stations in the Neotropics that have established a lot of what we think we know about neotropical ecology. And so the proxy, the fact that you can hear the road, that it's so close, um, you know, renders those data, that research, um, at least at least all that research warrants an asterisk at some level. Right. For anything where that might be a relevant factor, it is yeah. important to consider. But um, I would say if we compare this to your primary field site in Madagascar, Nosy Mangabe, the island off of the island of Madagascar, by virtue of the primitiveness of the uh, civilization on land, there are obviously cars driving around, but they're far from... On Madagascar. On Madagascar, not on Nosimangabe. So the point is, there's the occasional boat that comes by, but it really is insulated from those kinds of things. Um, not flying over. You do occasionally see stuff fly over or fly in. Um, Very occasionally there. At least, you know, it's been... Gosh, it's been... 20 years, yeah, 20 plus years since I've changed. been there at this point. But um, also, I mean, just because it's right at the western edge of the Indian Ocean, there's just not right, a lot. There's not a lot of reason to fly over it. Yeah. Um, I was going to compare this to BCI, where I did my field work, which is a very um, first world, first rate field station by virtue of the technology available for science. But by virtue of the fact that it's in Lake Gatun in the Panama Canal, it is insulated from the noises of the outside world with an interesting exception. The boats... Well, there's plenty of planes flying overhead on BCI. Plenty of planes yeah. on BCI. Boats go by in the canal, and the weird thing, maybe not so weird sonically, but it's weird that the difference is the stark, is that you, by and large, don't hear them during the day, and at night the sound travels much better, and maybe you're also more attuned to it. But there is this sense of, hmm. like, you can see the boats going silently by in the day, um, and then at night you actually hear them, you know, God, is there going to be something about, um, the, the coldness of the air and the amount of water that is held in it? I believe it? so. I believe so. Um, and then I was, there was and, and maybe also sensory, uh, you know, so what else you were tuned to that you, that, that our hearing gets, gets ratcheted up at night when our eyes can't do as good a job yes. at doing, at doing sensory interpretation of our environment. That's true. But because I was very much interested in this pattern yeah. while I was there, I listened very carefully when I saw ships go by seemingly silently in the day to see if I could find the noise and in general not. So yeah. there, I think there's definitely a physical thing, but I wanted to compare all of these things 
to Tipitini in Yasuni, where we've spent time. Um, my recollection is the first week in Tipitini, we literally did not see a single plane fly over, and it's certainly way too remote to hear anything else, right? And mm -hmm. so the idea of a place on Earth where actually you don't see any evidence of anything from the outside yeah. is a level of, well, uh, of insulation. I mean, there's there's a way in which Nozimangabe, my field site in Madagascar, is, is more remote, um, but there's also a way in which it's less, that it is... Uh, five kilometers at the moment, given where the sea levels are now, uh, from the the mainland of Madagascar and the town of Maransetra. And Maransetra is itself not connected by road for much of the year because the roads get washed out on the regular every yep. year. And so, and you know, the the and it's a it's not a it's not a giant town, but it's a town with a regular rice market, which is the you know most rice and coal or most of what people charcoal or most of what people are buying if they have any money at all to buy things. Um, and, you know, it's five, five kilometers away. The vast majority of people don't have any way to get there. Um, you, you know, there are always, on, on most days, at least in the late 90s, you would see a pirogue or two, you know, one of these dugout canoes uh, with a fisherman um, who was out for the day getting fish for his family. Um, and very occasionally you get a spice boat coming by um, because this is, uh, this is where a lot of the world's vanilla is grown in the in the um, Mashwal Peninsula, and a lot of uh, a lot of cloves as well. And so yep. you have these Malagasy spice boats who are who are interested in stopping at Nozi Mangabe on the way down the coast to um, access one of the bigger court the bigger ports. Uh, and that's you know that's definitely a strange you know a, a strange thing from the outside world when you get a bunch of usually naked sailors spilling off these boats that smell like vanilla and cloves. What are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So back to the paper, though. Yeah. The um the the point I wanted to make is that I bet there are a bunch of things that have a calming, calibrating effect on the mind that you know that just simply at base remind you that you are somehow embedded in nature and that you can get very involved in the human stuff. But the other thing you know, is yes. wonderfully indifferent to your social concerns, right? Yes. Um, and so, you know, brooks, the sky, um, animals that uh, surprise you and mm -hmm. uh, essentially point towards questions about what they're up to and why they're doing it now and, and all of that. And I realize most people aren't uh, consciously tuned into those questions, right. but I do think part of what's being measured here is anything that suggests a connection to that other thing yeah. is probably good. And it would be interesting to know how much it's, you know, trees are the thing because, I don't know, because they're uh, capable of being in any habitat and all. But Yeah, or, you know, also a horizon um, line that tells you that it's, um, you know, that, that most of us find sort of a twinkling horizon pretty in a way, but especially a jagged horizon that suggests mountains that don't, doesn't have lights on it brings to mind a very different sense of like that there. If I could get there, mm -hmm. I, you know, I would, I would, I would be in nature. And, you know, here in the Pacific Northwest, we've not only got these, these lines of, of mountains running all the way from BC, from British Columbia down through California, but they're punctuated by volcanoes. And so, um, you know, here we can, we have, depending on where you are in, in Portland, you can see Hood and um, Adams and Helens. And, um, you know, farther north, you also get um, 
you also get Matt Rainier and Farther North Baker, and I know I'm forgetting at least one, but you know these really these just iconic. And you know Mount St. Helens isn't that beautiful anymore because it blew its top in what 1980, 81, one of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rest of them, you know, in, in a in a line up here, it's the Cascades, and then emerging from the top of a mountain range is this is this volcan- volcanic cone. Like, oh, that tells me something about what's out there, and it's not any, it's not us. Yeah, it's not us. It's not us. Yeah. If there's one thing we don't control, it's volcanoes. <laughs> that's for sure. Yes. Yep. All right, so... uh, Are we going somewhere else? No, no. Okay, so let's see. There are a few other things I wanted to say about this paper. Um, Here's another uh, quote that, Zach, I'm just reading off my my screen, so don't show it. Uh, Another component of dose, by which they mean how many trees and how close. So they they looked... They they were also interested in not just uh, whether amount of trees... um, you know, proximity to tr- any trees, amount of trees, and also they were looking at what's called species richness, uh, which is to say diversity of trees, tree species. Another component of dose is to understand for whom urban green space has the strongest effect. Certain people are at greater risk for depression. In Germany, again, this is just where the research was done, in Germany, women, people with low socioeconomic status, and unemployed people are at greater risk for depression and are more likely to be prescribed antidepressants. Previous research has investigated whether exposure to green space could be protective against or moderate or or moderate health inequalities. So um, this, you know, the whole paper causes a person to think about depression, but this specifically caused me to think about depression because I thought, well, okay, Separately, it is known that um, women are more prone to depression than men. Um, and let's just let's table that discussion for the moment about why that might be. Um, but the other things that were here were, where was it? Um, Losos, people with low socioeconomic status, as we've already been talking about, and unemployed people. Well, um, if we imagine that depression as something that has been in humans for a very long time and has complexity and has uh, variable cost... Um, is in fact adaptive. Um, under what conditions? And you know, not to say that there aren't pathological forms of depression that really create problems for people. Um, but you know, what conditions? Under what conditions might feeling depressed be adaptive sufficient to cause you to change your conditions if you have any control at all over them, and thus create an environment in which you would no longer have cause to be depressed? Um, if you are of low socioeconomic status, if you have low unemployment. And another one was um, they, they just looked at personality characteristics of optimist versus pessimist. Like, well, um, if, if you're apparently, if you have a pessimistic view on the world, you are more likely to be prescribed antidepressants. That both seems obvious and also a little bit backwards because maybe you have a pessimistic view on the world because your opportunities suck. Because you haven't been, you know, you 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 haven't been able to find, or the world has not provided you an ability to make opportunities with which you can change your environment. So I want to uh, argue that this is a place for the dichotomy. We very often have things where we name something based on the pathological form. Yes. Right. And so I think the very point good. is there yeah. is a an adaptive state here. And I think Randy Nessie has done wonderful work mm. in this area and people mm-hmm. ought to look him up if they want to understand it. But the basic point is, look, if you, you know, just simple biological um, predicament, if you have no prospects with which to enhance your position in the world, then what you can do is you can minimize what you're burning of what you've got. 
right? Mm -hmm. So not being active in the world, not being out spending money, not being out wasting calories, whatever you're doing might mm -hmm. be the right thing. Now, does that feel good? Does it look good? Probably not. The pathological version then becomes, you know, paralytic depression or depression that is uncorrelated yeah. to what prospects you might actually have that blinds you to them or something like that. But we should be careful not to assume that the entire landscape is just a malfunction when it almost certainly isn't. I did want to go back and correct one thing, though. I have mm -hmm. also heard and read that women are somewhat more prone to depression. And I've always thought that this was incorrect, that it's really, it's it's playing different roles, that men are too busy causing women to become depressed. And so it's like a yin-yang relationship. So the way you would test that experimentally is to look at straight women versus lesbians. Yes. And what would we find if we did that? Do you have any idea? This is this is your game, man. <laughs> I just gave you another shovel. All right. Well, I'm going to go uh, check with a bunch of lesbians and see if I come up with anything useful on this topic. Do get back to me. Yes. Uh, well, of course. Of Excellent. course. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the question, the sex differences in various um, uh, so-called mood disorders um, is an interesting topic, but just not one that I'm prepared to go into in any depth today. Um, Let's see. There was at least one more thing that I wanted to talk about here. Oh, that they, you know, I, they're using this proxy for um, for depression, which is antidepressant use, right? And that's in one way a great proxy because it doesn't require self reports. It doesn't, you know, of of mood of you know, and and then assessing with people you don't know at all, with whom you don't have a longstanding clinical relationship, for instance, whether or not they are in fact depressed. Um, and so it's you know, it's it's quantitative. It's actually a pretty good simple metric, and those are fairly hard to come by. Just like measuring, you know, having databases on street trees is not um, a perfect overlap for how many trees there might be. What if people have trees in their backyard? That doesn't that doesn't get counted by this, but it's a, it's a pretty good simple proxy. Um, but it does raise this issue of, are antidepressants helping? Mm. And, you know, we're, again, I want to, we're going to do this in some more depth at some point, but, um, I, I will say that I think that there are very, very, very few people for whom antidepressants, uh, do seem to help. Um, not just right away, but persistently, uh, but there is abundant evidence that antidepressants are um, themselves causal of many problems, that they are themselves addictive, such that uh, it can become impossible to get off of them and have uh, have anything like uh, coherence in your moods and, and life um, going forward, and that they you know, as, as we've talked about a little bit before on here, this idea of um, there are a whole bunch of people walking around with a chemical imbalance in their brain is about as ludicrous as suddenly in the 20th century, all humans, you know, a, a majority of mostly, mostly rich humans started needing orthodontia because our teeth are all terrible. Because our, because right. genes are driving our teeth to not be in the right position. Right. 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 Yeah, I totally agree with this. And um, I, I want to point out that I, I think this work is effectively revealing a very, very general pattern. In mm -hmm. other words, what are the chances that if you, you know, if the real question is, um, are uh, modern living circumstances healthy for people, right? And you zone in or you zoom in on 
two characteristics. Here's an unhealthy thing. Depression bad enough that you need drugs for it or you need treatment, mm -hmm. right? And here's a thing that we've gotten farther from, trees, right? <laughs> what are the chances <laughs> if we just compare these two things that lo and behold, you will mm. find that actually trees may be playing a really positive role for people who live near them, right? And so... So, so you're like, pick, pick almost anything that we historically always had a close relationship with and have less of a close relationship now. And another character that seems new to the 20th or 21st century in terms of something that people are experiencing. And one of them's going up, one of them's going down. Let's see if we move the, the one that was going down up, we can't move the other one down. Right. And so yep. my prediction, if you just propose the experiment without naming trees or depression, is you're going to find correlations. They will be very, very weak because there are so many of these sure. things and they will all combine, combine to make the effect. But what this particular thing is saying is either this is a special relationship, which I doubt, mm -hmm. or that the point is even a small amount of contact that you retain to your former uh, self that lived in close proximity to yeah. trees yeah. is enough to restore a sense of balance. And so anyway, this does point uh, very much to the theme of our book, which Absolutely. we finished this week. Yep. Um, and I should say, we finished it this week. We are sitting here together, still more or less smiling at each other. Um, you did not so much as contact a lawyer about divorce as far as I know. Is that? As far as you know. That's fine. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, I think this is a testament um, to something very positive. In submitting it, the final, the final draft to our editor, I did tell her that neither dishes nor marriages were broken. This is wonderful. I mean, mm -hmm. this, you know, this isn't just uh, co-authoring a book. You and I have survived, our marriage has survived riding tandem bicycles together. We have lived in a tent together mm -hmm. for, for months. Tandem we kayaks? Have, we tandem kayaks. These are, these are marriage killers right there. And, uh, none of that was as hard as this. <laughs> I know <laughs> I'm really sorry, <laughs> but in any case, in any case, the so theme it's just for, for now, the vast majority of people watching who are like, why did he just take the hit for that? Like, I will oh. say that when it's uh, tandem kayaks or bicycles or sharing a tent, we are equally responsible for the problems and the, the, the chaos. But um, the problems on this <laughs> yeah, were not shared equally. No, they were not shared equally. Okay. But in any case, the theme of the book, yes. the theme of the book <laughs> is about hypernovelty. That is to say all the changes that the world inflicts on us moderns yeah. and the consequence. And I just want to point out that in some sense, the lesson of this work about the trees is that something else has been driving the uh, structures of our lives. Yeah. We have been moved overwhelmingly into cities. We have been moved away from our families. We have been moved, uh, we have been uh, blocked from seeing the night sky. We have been forced to process noise that our minds must throw out in order for us to think straight. We have been- We've got blue LEDs in every room in our house. Blue LEDs, we sit under fluorescent lights, Every manner of distortion is there. And the point is, A, there are trade-offs, right? Is there something good to moving into a larger population? Sure, you might find people whose interests match yours better or with whom you're better positioned 
to collaborate just because it's a larger population, but at what cost? And so we never get to the at what cost. We see the value of doing this, that, and the other, and we are finally, finally, finally beginning to recognize the massive cost of just simply not knowing that there was a connection, that actually your physical proximity to something like trees might have a major impact through no mechanism that we can specify on your sense of your own prospects in the world, right? Mm -hmm. That is an amazing fact. And if we ever got good at sorting out all of the various contributing factors, we might immediately be able to give the world a huge raise in terms of well-being by simply reducing the negative impacts. You could probably reduce the negative impacts of most of these things by 80% for a yes. very small fraction of uh, the cost. You could keep most of the benefit. And uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we were- I agree less insane because everything that we are surrounded by is at odds with us. I do I do like, again, um, the idea of retrofitting trees. I think you know, one of the reasons that this research caught my eye this week um, was that, you know, unlike a call for, um, you know, a hundred acre park in the middle of an extant urban landscape, like where are you, what else has to give a ton of stuff else would have to give unless there's already a park that's just fallen into disarray. Whereas, uh, many, many neighborhoods have concrete that could be, and it's, it's not free and it's not even that cheap, but it's pretty cheap, uh, to put in street trees compared to a lot of the other kind of green space that, um, that many of us want. Well, I, I agree with that. And part of the problem is that we cannot escape the sense that, you know, these are the cities. But these cities were put where they are and con and constructed the way they are because something was prioritized over human well-being. Now, at the mm -hmm. time, we didn't understand as much about human well-being and we couldn't. Now we can. Mm -hmm. And so in some sense... If you're if you're scratching your head, how can we, people are so broken and so confused and um, you know and are in need of you know surgery and having yeah. tension put on their teeth and uh, you know all of these things? The answer is okay. Well, this is all true for us, mm -hmm. right? How can we not make it true for another generation? These people mm -hmm. have yet to be born, haven't been hurt yet. Yep. And yep. so going forward, we could reorganize things. And the fact is no city should look like this. You shouldn't be intermingled with, with vehicles everywhere, mm -hmm. right? The vehicles may be necessary, right? But there's a way to organize things so that the point is the vehicles get you where you need to go um, at a gross level. Something else, your own power or something else that is not destructive, dangerous, and all of that transports you the rest of the way. You are surrounded by green. You could yep. imagine a, a version of a city that was much more hospitable. And, um, you know, it's, it's terrible that we don't think in these terms. I will say that our, our new hometown, Portland, Oregon, um, does a really good job of this, at least, um, at least on the west side, and I think much of the east side too. But the, the, west, the west Hills, which is Rollinger, uh, than, than the flats on the east side of the Willamette, um, have, has a ton of parks. And uh, one of the things that I have done during the last year of lockdowns when um, we've both traveled less than, <clears throat> I think, you know, I've been fewer places than I have in any other adult year of my life. I, I crave 
exploration and adventure and travel. And, you know, any day that I find myself standing someplace I've never stood before um, is <clears throat> is a win for me. And it's been harder and harder to accomplish um, while being in a city, but not a city that we've lived in for very long. And so um, just even yesterday, actually, I had, you know, a half an hour after um, being somewhere before I had to get home to do this podcast. Um, and so I went to one of the coffee shops that I like and then just, you know, this is, you can use tech to find nature, right? I just Googled up parks near me and that, you know, X near me feature that everyone who uses Google, I think, knows on their phones knows exists. Um, probably usually you think, you know, gas stations near me or, you know, restaurants near me, but parks near me is wonderful. And I knew that there was this giant park about a half a mile away, but I, I know that park and that's not where I wanted to go. I wanted to see if there were a little pocket park near me and there was like, a, you know, a 10th of a mile away. And so I walked through a residential neighborhood that I'd never seen before. And, you know, saw a couple dogs I'd never seen before and ended up on a little park with, um, with yes, a lot of trees and, a you know, a, a playground with even some kids playing. Oh my God, they were all masked, but okay. And, um, and that was that I didn't know. And I wouldn't have known in that case, you know, I would never have driven down a series of little residential streets, um, to a dead end road, um, absent being able to say parks near me, anyone. Uh, so that, that is another way to sort of add value to your daily life, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that, uh, parks, you know, obviously this didn't test park effect on the mind. For sure. Um, just one more thing about two more things about this um, article before we move on. Um, I mentioned that they looked at species richness, like, okay, trees close, good, but um, how about diversity of trees, number of species of trees? And they've, they found um, that didn't matter, like it, it doesn't have an effect on mood. And it reminded me of something that Steve Herman said to me the last time I saw him, which would have been early 2019. We talked a bit about Steve Herman on episode 17, actually, and I know which one it was because episode 17 back on May 23rd of last year was when we talked about the Evergreen fiasco because it was the anniversary. Um, and uh, Steve Herman died early in COVID, not from COVID, I think, but he was a nearly founding member of the Evergreen faculty and an extraordinary naturalist, an extraordinary uh, ornithologist who had all of his students learn, for instance, the Grinnell journaling um, style for, for natural history. And I was actually, I had just begun um, interviewing him. Uh, with regard to some of the wondrous things that Evergreen had done early in its time when we were trying to talk, we were thinking about trying to figure out how to create a kind of higher ed that would be robust. To make that clearer, you and I were not part of Evergreen's founded. We were tiny children. Um, so at a time when you and I were talking about how now in the present to make uh, higher ed more robust, you were interviewing Steve Herman about what he had seen back towards the founding of the college. In early 2019, which I thought I said. Ah, sorry. You could just <laughs> no, no, no. The, edit the Maybe it was unclear. I, but... I, I, missed the, I missed the 2019. Okay. Um, so two years ago or so, um, I was with him in his, um, in his living room in rural southwestern Washington, and he said something to the effect of... Um, too many people don't know that there are a lot of kinds of trees. And when he said that, I thought, oh, come on. Like everyone knows like a difference between a pine tree and a maple tree. And he said, yeah, kind of. But 
within gymnosperms, which is, um, you know, all the trees with needles or, um, people don't really know the difference. And, um, you know, probably most people know maple and oak because they've got these really iconic leaf shapes, but also just because like we build things out of them, right? Like we, we know the trees that have utility to us. And, um, and for him, he always like his, his style of education was really about, you know, drilling down on the, on the detail and having students really know, you know, what species of bird that is and what species of plant that is. And from there, people were able to find their own meaning. And I think, um, that is, you know, that's, that's very rare and I don't think it's necessary to get value. Um, but it is something that, that struck me that it's probably true that a lot of people don't actually walk around, um, noticing that there are a lot of different kinds of trees. It's just like, yeah, there's trees. Yes. And could you go back to the title of the article? As the they title chose of the it? article is Urban Street Tree Biodiversity and Antidepressant Prescriptions. Yeah. So that title is actually wrong because although they studied the biodiversity, mm -hmm. they concluded that it had no impact. Well, they, I mean, they they looked at it and they that title doesn't say yeah. what the relationship is. I agree, but it also does highlight something that they found no correlation yes. with. Um, so anyway, as to uh, Steve's point yep. and a title for either the project that educates people on this or a better title for that paper, what's it through you? <laughs> I mean, right? Absolutely. And to those six of you who got that <laughs> reference, congratulations. Congratulations. Well done. <laughs> Um, Thuya is the genus, the Latin genus for ewes, uh, I think. Uh, no, it's junipers. Uh, it's junipers, yeah. Well, ewes are a type of juniper. Nope. No, they're ewes different. Are different. Ewes oh, that's taxes. Taxes, yes. Yeah. Obviously. Yes. Um. And okay, just just this. It was an interesting paper, so we're spending a fair bit of time on it, even though a lot of these things are little. Um. Quote from the paper, this finding is supported by other studies that found abundance of a taxonomic group, but not its species richness, affects mental health and well-being. So this had me wondering how many clades that might apply to. So the, the, what they're saying is you get a lot of something around and that makes you feel better, but it doesn't really matter if there's diversity of that thing. And I thought, you know, for a lot of people, and I think Steve would, Steve Herman would resonate with this too, birds, right? Like a lot of people like, like the idea of birds around, but you know, I know when I go out in the morning and listen to the Don Chorus, um, I'm, you know, a hundredth the birder that Steve was, but I know that it is more interesting to me when I hear a diversity of, of bird song and bird call that I know are coming from different species, you know, and I, and then I can infer about mixed foraging flocks and about different behaviors. And like, I can, I can sort of add, add to my model of what it is that is out of view about what is actually going on as opposed to if I just heard, you know, if I just heard crows, which I love, uh, or if I just heard chickadees, um, it's, it's a, it's a more depauperate natural history and therefore a more depauperate story that you could tell. But um, I don't think the same thing would hold like more, you know, more trees, um, but it doesn't matter if you've got a diversity of them, better mood, more birds, better mood, more leeches, better mood, more, more sharks, better. I don't think so. I don't think it holds for all clades. Well, antelope, maybe, maybe. antelope, would antelope improve your mood? Antelopes would would improve my mood. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to look up whether antelopes is how you say it. I think antelope, it's in I think it's antelope. Antelope, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. um, but no. Or actually, to use our younger son's um, pluralization scheme, it might be antelope. Antelope. Oh. 
Yeah. That's good. You're mm-hmm. right. Now, I, I, I'm not so sure about this. I think actually it does hold across clades. Oh, and yeah. I, this okay. is admittedly an anecdote, but uh, we will return to this. But um, earlier this week, uh, actually yesterday, I was in <laughs> a, uh, I was enjoying the sun. I was out in a local nature reserve sitting and I detected that I was being bit by a mosquito. And I looked at it in horror and I realized it was a type of mosquito I've never seen before. And so that made me feel good. And then I killed it and I felt even better. So yes, it elevated my mood. But that actually, that runs counter to this. You you were interested in the richness of the species richness of the mosquito, of the local mosquito populations, but not in the quantity. No, I was interested in vanquishing this mosquito. And the fact that it was a novel foe made me even happier. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Um, And then just one more line from this paper, uh, which uh, is referenced to a different paper. Indeed, the most common way people experience nature is through a window. So I find this sad, but it also helps explain why they got the results that they did, that street trees, that that within being within 100 meters of a tree, having your home within 100 meters of of trees, is uh, is predictive of being less likely to be on antidepressants, um, and you know mostly people are experiencing whatever nature they're experiencing through a window. I'm sure the benefits would be higher uh, if they were actually out in the air with all of their senses attuned and all of this. But um, amazing that the benefit can be can be gotten simply by viewing it through. A pane of glass. Yeah, that is amazing that the, that the yeah. effect um, persists even through that uh, low bandwidth channel. Yeah. And I will say, I think part of, you know, part of the problem is that people lose, you know, you know, at one level, it's really dumb. It's pretty easy to go out and access nature. On the other hand, if you kind of don't know where to go in order to encounter nature that's actually worth looking at, yeah. um, or you don't know how to interact with it because it didn't happen to be a feature of the way your family did things or whatever. It's not that obvious. And mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, it's a pity, but it's something we need to consider, which is, well, how do you onboard somebody into this process that it is simply assumed, you know, we all know where to go and what to do and we're choosing not to. Um, that's Silicon not... Silicon Valley speak meets nature. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. <laughs> That hurt. <laughs> I'm taking it back. Maybe I didn't just mean corporate onboard. speak. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, it, to uh, induct. I, I, did, I, did, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't mean to stop you in your tracks there. Yes. Um, all right. Uh, I, will, I will think more carefully before speaking in the future and even after that. Great. All right. Um, so before before we go on to talking about uh, Mumford and Sons, which you want to talk about some, uh, I want to read just a couple of sections from this um, remarkable, very long ProPublica piece that came out, and we'll link to it as we as we do to the main things we talk about in the in the show notes, such that people can um, read it themselves. So this is about um, basically suicides in young people under strict. Um, um, lockdowns and ooh, let me see hold on um and i don't know where it went oh there we go um here we go 
if you could show my screen, Zach. Thank you. So this is um, published just a few days ago, Alec McGillis in ProPublica. Uh, and it comes under the title, um, The Lost Year, What the Pandemic Cost Teenagers, with the subtitle, In Hobbs, New Mexico, the high school closed and football was canceled, while just across the state line in Texas, students seem to be living nearly normal lives. Here's how pandemic school closures exact their emotional toll on young people. Uh, so, Zach, if I may, for a moment, um, I'll read one section from just from my screen, and then I'll have you give give it back in a minute, Zach. So, and the quote, and the psychological stress that the pandemic has produced for so many Americans of all ages is unlike so many more acute crises that we might experience in life, said Nick Allen, a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Oregon. Quote, this is quoting Nick Allen. There's a difference between a stressor that makes your life unpleasant and intolerable and a stressor that takes away good things, he said. For a lot of people, the stressor that COVID represents is one that takes away good things. You can't go to sporting events. You can't see your friends. You can't go to parties. It's not necessarily that you're experiencing abuse, although some may be. What's happening is that we're taking away high points in people's lives that give them reward and meaning. That may have an effect over time. The initial response is not as difficult as something that's stressful, but over time, the anhedonia, the loss of pleasure, is going to drive you down a lot more. Uh, which I think is critical. Um, and then um, I'm going to read three paragraphs from nearer the end, um, in which the author, let me just set it up first, the author is visiting uh, the teacher, the favorite teacher of a young man, a young man named Cooper, who was uh, apparently healthy and well-adjusted and beloved, and he was a star quarterback, and he committed suicide. Um, and it was stunning to everyone. Like People did not believe it when they heard his name and he was not the first um and oh, just a little bit in by way of setup that um new mexico has been um in sort of extreme lockdown for almost a year at this point and has um you know shut down schools and most school sports and all of this whereas just over the border it here where this is happening in texas um the government has mostly let local jurisdictions decide um, decide as as they want to. And so um, let's see, this last, here we go, Look, these three paragraphs. My last visit in Hobbs, that's the town in New Mexico, was to the home of Jennifer Espinoza, Cooper's favorite teacher. When I entered her bungalow, Espinoza, a friendly woman in her 40s, said that I should feel welcome to take my mask off because she had already been through a serious case of COVID-19 several weeks earlier. This startled me, but not nearly as much as what she told me next. That soon after her own illness, her partner of 18 years, Abe, had died of what had strongly resembled COVID-19, though his initial test had come back negative. He had been away from Hobbs at the time, working an oil field job in Odessa, Texas, and a co-worker he had shared a truck with later tested positive. Abe died on November 30th at the age of 49, before she could see him. And then Cooper, the quarterback, had died a week later. It had been a terrible month, and it had left her uncertain about the best course for the Hobbs schools and sports teams. As the school year started, she had been among the majority of teachers who were willing to return to classrooms. This had not only been confirmed for her as she saw how poorly the remote learning was going. Not only did most students leave their cameras off, some wouldn't even turn on their microphones. I can't see them. I can't even hear them, she said. They didn't want to talk. But then she herself had gotten the virus. She wasn't sure where, and its severity had hit home, even before her partner's death. She had swung the other way on reopening. Now Cooper's death was making her reconsider again. 
If it would prevent another Cooper, then definitely yes, she said. We just have to weigh the good and the bad. Do we fear everyone coming back and possibly getting COVID? Or do we fear losing another student more? You had not heard that before. No. Um, it makes me think a lot of things. Um, and it's hard for me to separate it from uh, what the world looks like as people are experimenting with, yeah. you know, returning to it as spring is dawning here in Portland. And um, the... A, this has always been a trade-off. And frankly, we have dealt with it very, very badly. We have dealt in black and white terms across the board, right? Yeah. And this, you know, you have, for example, a continuum in vulnerability by age, yeah. right? That ought to be having a dramatic effect on the way we think about things such as school. It ought to be having a dramatic effect on the way we evaluate the costs and benefits of a novel vaccine. And yet we are not in this mindset. It's like you're either on board with the vaccine or you're not, or you're a, you know, you're casual about the virus and you want schools to open in spite of the hazard or, um, you're, you know, paranoid. Yeah. Right. And it's never been this way. You're the either, you're either in favor of of avoiding the virus or in avoiding economic disaster. You can't you can't be interested in both. It's not allowed by the conversation. It's not allowed by the conversation. And any of us who are trying to do this carefully know that it is the conversation. It has mm -hmm. always been the conversation. And yeah. to the extent that the conversation is ruled out in favor of a choice between two things that are can't possibly be right, um, we are, you know, we are setting ourselves up for a disaster. And I will say, you know, of uh, we have been pointing to this from the beginning. We have been, we've been right about a lot, but I think we have been, this is the thing that we are most right about and have been most consistent in trying to alert people to the danger is that they are blocking themselves off from normal human interactions. And that is only going to accelerate the process of us going insane and that you as an individual have a certain amount you can do right a lot you can do um, but it involves figuring out how to you know how to reduce the harm of the trade-off itself right so for example yesterday i saw a group of young people gathered in a way that young people do not typically gather they were they had clearly all ridden their bikes somewhere, which was nice enough to see. Young, young, how old? Late teenagers. Okay. They had ridden their bikes somewhere, and they were decidedly sitting in a circle in which they were socially distant, and mm. they were being teenagers together. Uh, mixed right? sex? <laughs> what? Mixed sex? Uh, they were, uh, I would say it was two-thirds boys, but it was but mixed. It was, okay. Yeah. But anyway, the, the point well, is there's a there's a... There's a way, and it's out there, and all you need to do is be tuned into a finer level of detail about what this threat is and how it works and how it doesn't work. And the point is, okay, hey, there's a loophole, right? How do well, we use that loophole? You know, there's there's a way for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, again, almost after many months of ever colder, wetter, worse weather, right? So, you know, we happen to be having a couple of just glorious days here in, in Portland. And it's, you know, it feels now for those, you know, for those of us just in the Pacific Northwest, like 
the weather has turned, not such that we're about to hit those, you know, two and a half months of glorious, perfect weather that everyone else wishes they had, um, which won't come until like, you know, maybe mid-July, um, but that we are now hitting that intermittent phase where it's not just going to be, you know, really wet and cold with, a, you know, occasionally a sunbreak, but, you know, we're going to increasingly get more and more days like the, the ratio of beautiful days as it gets warmer and warmer and warmer and bluer and bluer and bluer um, to days that you wouldn't really be sitting socially distanced outside is going to go up. Well, um, but still, the loophole isn't, it's great, go use it. The loophole yeah. is make dopamine while the sun shines. And, <laughs> I like that. You know, we, yeah. were, we were warning oh. people before winter, winter <clears throat> is coming. And yes, that's a joke. But it's also not a joke. And right. I think the thing is, what you want, you know, it's like you have a an account and the account is drained as you are isolated from the things that actually calibrate you and matter. Mm -hmm. And that is filled up every time you are able to go participate in those things. And the fact, you know, we didn't know if the um, failure of COVID to transmit outdoors would endure. We still don't know, but so far it seems to have. So far it's enduring. So as long as it endures, the point is how weird that 98% of the space on or in your city, 98% of the space is probably safe, mm -hmm. right? And you're not thinking of it that way. And in fact... I'm stuck. When I go out and I use our rails to trails bike path and I see, therefore, lots and lots of people, something like half of them are wearing masks, whether they're biking or walking or whatever they're doing. And I don't know for sure. Some of them, you know, if two people are walking side by side and they don't live together, then maybe they're doing it because they're, you know, it's probably more caution than I think is necessary given the evidence about outdoors. But there's a defense of it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you're riding along and you're not riding with anybody, then the point is, well, you're not making as much vitamin D as you'd be making, right? You need more sun exposure. You need a break from the sense that everything is about COVID at all moments. And the fact of something touching your face is can't be mentally healthy. Mm -hmm. I will. Um, so we, we've talked about this before, and it was last summer, the last time that we were biking together, but you've been on your bike a lot. Um, and I think the four of us, you and me and our, our boys were out on a, a different, uh, different trail system, um, coming back from sort of deep, uh, Southeast Portland at one point. And we also saw a lot of people on bikes with masks and we're wondering, uh, what that's about. And I think, um, I think there's effectively no chance that if you are biking alone, you can get COVID yep. if you're not masked. And so the wearing masks on bikes is, you know, I, I, I agree with you that it is going to be you know, unnecessary, but that if you are biking hard, if you are breathing hard and you pass someone close, uh, it, is, it is more likely than if you weren't breathing hard that you could transmit it's, to that person. It's one factor yeah. out of many. And I, I would love to know whether anybody at all has actually contracted COVID from such a scenario, I right? Agree. And if it is, if some have, it's a tiny fraction and how much yeah. better off would, how much more bike riding would get done and therefore how much more sanity would be retained yes, yes. if people weren't feeling like they had to do it in, in uh, you know, active COVID prevention mode. Yes. But... Um, 
But anyway, the, uh, the question that I have, so I have this sense, I look at these people and I have this urge, because of the kind of person I am and have been all along, I have this urge, I want to talk to each of them and I want to say, do you know that you probably don't need to be doing that, right? And of course, that would be a disaster many, many times and sometimes it would get a proper response. Mm -hmm. But I, the problem is I think we're involved in a story out there. Right? Oh, and yes. the story is the good people and the bad people, and you can recognize them by their masks. And therefore, the point is you wouldn't want to take advantage of the fact that you don't need the mask under many outdoor circumstances, because then you would signal you're part of the bad people and nothing's worse than that. And so what I'm hoping is that somehow those of us who get this and those of us who get how much harm there is from masks when you don't need them, how much advantage there is in feeling normal about anything at all during COVID, right, given all of that, what we need is some sort of signal that I'm not wearing my mask now, but it isn't because I don't take that as very, very important, mm -hmm. right? I want something, you know, I, I feel like I should be wearing something that says yeah. I'm a COVID hawk, but yeah. I'm not wearing my mask because it's not needed here, right? Yeah. And of course, that's too much. But right. um, but somehow we need to create that culture of people who do get the danger, take it very seriously, and maybe that's even why they're out on a given day, that because you, you need the normalcy in order to retain your sanity and such such crazy times. Indeed. Well, lots, lots more to say about, um, the tensions and, uh, you know, to have, to have the words, the story of this teacher whose partner died of COVID and whose cherished student died of suicide within a week of one another, um, due to the, uh, political measures put in place to prevent COVID, uh, is, remarkable and you know maybe maybe we'll just let that sit yeah for now. i agree i didn't mean to detour us no, away no, but I, no um but it's it's now your turn to talk about uh cancellation well no, i think we're gonna skip that i think in light of uh of all we've talked about i don't think it belongs here we can talk about it uh another time okay um was there more on our list because i do have a you had, uh, it was possible we were going to say something about polar bears, but it's not necessary. And then you had just a couple things at the very end that you wanted to say. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we should move to polar bears. Want to do polar bears? Yep. Um, I, let me see. Um, let me pull it up. Um, I did not fully prepare on this one. Here we go. Zachary um, published an animal behavior this last week, I think, um, polar bear foraging on common eider eggs, estimating the energetic consequences of a climate mediated behavioral shift. Okay. That's, that's all I got. Um, the, this is just another piece of new research and, um, an eider is a duck. It's a sea duck. Um, and most people will be surprised to hear that polar bears eat duck eggs. I know that I am quite surprised. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like it would need to eat a lot of them. Exactly. So um, just from the conclusion, our results indicate that a small number of polar bears can gain energy in late June and early July by foraging on common eider eggs when marine foraging opportunities are no longer available. While our results suggest that some bears can profit energetically from foraging on eggs, the overall contribution that bears Oh, that eider eggs make to an entire population appears small, reinforcing the importance of seal hunting on ice to the overall persistence of polar bears. So 
you know, the main message here is that as sea ice melts and polar bears can't go out onto it in order to find the breathing holes of the seals, which are their usual diet, um, they have to look to other things. And one of the things they're looking to is duck eggs of all things, which yes, they'd have to eat a lot. And indeed, optimum, optimal foraging um, theory uh, predicts and they find that early in the season when there are a lot of eggs, the bears, um, a few bears manage to make a profit, a metabolic profit off of the eggs. But um, the, you know, the, the longer the bears are there and the fewer the eggs there are, um, the more pointless the effort gets because they spend more resource searching for than the calories would return if they find them. So there is some ambiguity here because marine foraging behavior has two meanings right? It has the one you described, and it also can mean, in the case of polar bears, uh, foraging on marines. Which, yes, which uh, uh, we don't know them to do, at least um, in this particular well, place. they're very nutritious, but they're also somewhat dangerous to hunt, and so mm-hmm. uh, it has not been a widespread behavior in polar bears. As I understand it, marines fight back more than duck eggs do. That is almost, I, I mean, you know, what do the data say? Very good question. Right. You'd, you'd have to Run an experiment. (laughs) Of course. Of course you would. (laughs) You might want to do an observational study for that. Yep. All right. Well, it's interesting. I I have long wondered what is going to happen to the polar bears if um – warming continues. Um, well, so I mean, one of the things this proposes, and you know, of course, anyone who's thought deeply about ecology knows this, but that there will be cascading effects, right? That, you know, the uh, eider eggs um, or other marine, other, other eggs of um, mass nesting birds uh, that happen to live within the range of polar bears uh, are not likely to be able to sustain a functional polar bear population for very long, but um, but the polar bears will eat them until they're gone, which means you'll have those populations crashing as well. Uh, and you know, having having crashed those populations, the bears will move on to something else until they can't find enough to eat at all, and they just they just die. Well, I don't know if you'll remember this. I, I uh, advanced a hypothesis many years ago, which I still believe likely. Um, having advanced it does not mean I believe it is likely. But in this no, case, I advanced it, and I believe it is likely, even though others will regard it as reason to dismiss me, which is that I think there's a real chance that polar bears will effectively disappear into brown bears mm. uh, if yeah. the uh, the habitat that they are adapted to is no longer available and that, in fact, um, there may be a mechanism for such things that would involve um, the collection of adaptive discoveries over in polar bear space by brown bears um, that would manifest as effectively regarding the, uh, the exotic looking bear as sexy, you know, <laughs> that, uh, the brown bears might find the, um, the polar bear that knows the things about how you deal with the poles when they're, uh, frozen. Or, or the other way around, in which case now we know one of the gifts that the polar bears who are finding the brown bears sexy would bring duck eggs. Duck eggs. Mm-hmm. Yes. As, oh. as a, as a little nuptial gift. <laughs> right, a delicacy. Mm-hmm. Sure. No, it, uh, yeah, it's, like, it's actually scale wise, it's like caviar. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, that's that's all I got on polar bears. All right. Well, that was great. Um, I'm, you know, nature is just amazing. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. I'm not wrong. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think the we've got two orders of business left to to take care of. One is a correction. Oh, actually, actually. Sorry. Why don't we show the thumbnail picture first just to wrap that up before you do your two orders of business? Okay, sure. Um, 
So did you send it to Zach? I also yes, have I it. Yes, I did. And I have, uh, I have a couple in a sequence. I have it, Zach, here on my screen if you want to show it, if that's easier. No, Zach, why don't you show the sequence? Okay. So uh, longtime viewers will know that I've been uh, keeping track of a pair of bald eagles. This is actually not one of them. This is from a second pair that I've now figured out where they live and uh, have been watching them. And I'm learning a tremendous amount about watching uh, eagles and how they behave because actually you pick up a ton just simply spending spending the time. Um, so this is this is yesterday. I was lucky enough to have one of the eagles fly directly overhead. Um, here is actually that eagle on its return trip. Um, and this is actually right in, you know, it's not downtown Portland, but it's not far from it. It's a little pocket nature reserve by the Willamette River. You're on the east side here though, right? Yep. yep. And here uh, the animal is landing. This is not the tree that it has its nest in. This is an adjacent tree. That seems to be a common pattern. They have a tree where they like to hang out and look around, and then they have the tree where the nest uh, itself is. Maybe that's to, um, you know, these animals are about to lay eggs if the eggs aren't already laid and then they'll hatch soon. And obviously there's a danger of alerting other animals to where the nest is because the eggs or the chicks could be poached. Um, but in any case, um, really fun to, to be uh, watching animals that are, uh, you know, not just passing through and getting a glimpse of them, but getting a sense of what their life is like and spending enough time to, to see those patterns. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. All so right. that will be our, our thumbnail for this week, this yep. last one. Yeah. And then you had, you yeah, had two. Yeah, I've got a correction. Yeah. And the correction is I, much to my embarrassment, uh, said the wrong thing about who uh, the Mighty Quinn, the song The Mighty Quinn was by. I said the Beatles, and I asked... Uh, Do you want him to show that? Um, yeah, that's not a very good quality picture, but here's a um, picture of Manfred Mann, and it's... Um, don't know if it's a single or an album that is titled Mighty Quinn. But anyway, here's Manfred Mann and the famous version of uh, of the Mighty Quinn that we all know, those of us who know it, is indeed Manfred Mann. Here. But it, aren't, weren't they even covering it? Yes, they were. Right. Now, But they were not covering it from the Beatles. They were covering it from Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan was the author. And apparently the story is that Bob Dylan wrote it and recorded it as a basement tape and Manfred Mann released a cover of it before Dylan's was ever heard publicly, I think. Oh. And so in any case, we associate it with Manfred Mann, even though it is a Bob Dylan creation. But I will say the reason that uh, there's in some ways no excuse You feel for, terrible about I this, feel don't real. I don't usually do this. No, I am you don't. very careful about music. I'm, uh, I treat lyrics very carefully. And um, having casually accuse the Beatles of invoking the word Eskimo feels terrible. But I will point did out... Did they not cover it as well? I find no evidence that they did. Okay. I looked. Doesn't I mean there isn't some cover of it out there, but it's at least not a commonly uh, heard one. But I will point out in this photograph... Zach, you want to put the photograph up? In this photograph, the gentleman on the far right has clearly borrowed John Lennon's glasses, <laughs> which is no doubt why I made the error that I did. So, And yet, apparently, you couldn't count. 
I thought that was Pete Best on the far left. I see, I see, um, yes. You know, mm-hmm. it's been a while since I've seen Pete and didn't recognize sure, that that man like looks nothing us. like him. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, yes, I thought that was Pete Best. And uh, anyway, um, apology over, <laughs> <laughs> excuse delivered in such as it is. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, so, all right. yes. All right. And the final thing was, oh, yes. Um, I have, not too surprisingly, not heard from Ibram X. Kendi who I very much want to come to Dark Horse and talk to me about his framework for anti-racism, which I believe is incorrect, and I believe he should talk to me about it if he wishes to defend it. It's far better than doing what he seems to be doing. He has uh, not responded to Coleman Hughes. Um, uh, I would actually expect him to take up that offer more readily than ours, but nonetheless, I would like him to come on Dark Horse. And the reason is this. I believe his framework for anti-racism, his claim that there is only racism and anti-racism and not racist is not a category, that that claim is demonstrably false. Many people have said so, but I believe it is demonstrably false at the level of a logical proof that is so compelling that he will, in the aftermath of the delivery of that proof, have no choice but to either acknowledge that his framework is wrong or ignore it because there's no argument he could deliver that will counter it. Now, I would like to invite him, if he truly believes in his framework, and we don't know if he does, but if he truly believes in his framework, I believe the right thing to do is to come and face that critique, and then we'll have it out. And I promise uh, to be, you know, my usual self. I will listen to what he has to say. If he's right, I will acknowledge that he's right, and that's a big win for him. So in any case, next week, if we have not heard from Ibram Kendi, I will deliver... Um, that proof, and I believe everybody will will agree on hearing it that it has to be right. It's right. it's that simple and and that clear. So promised for next week. Mm-hmm. In, in in less in less uh, conversation with Kendi is in the works by then. Yeah, unless we've heard from him. All right. Well, um, we have I guess a few announcements as usual. Uh, we're going to take for those of you tuning in on YouTube a 15 minute break and we'll be back to answer your questions that you have posed in super chat afterwards um, please again join us at uh, one or both of our patreons on either of them you can get access to the discord server uh, and on mine uh, access to uh, two hour monthly private Q&A's and on Brett's uh, a couple of two hour conversations uh, that are not recorded but uh, that are uh, wonderful active been going on for a few years now right with some regulars and a few new people Um, yep and we have um, we have merchandise for sale at store.darkhorsepodcast.org we do intend to get some new stuff out soon Uh, please consider emailing darkhorse.moderator at gmail.com with any logistical questions about anything that we've said here. And um, you can find uh, clips. Um, I imagine soon there will be clips uh, from your conversation, which I'm sure was amazing, although I have not listened to it yet, with Jordan Peterson, which uh, went up last week on the Clips channel, uh, Dark Horse Podcast Clips on YouTube uh, soon. And um, I have I have taken to recommending that you, you know, love the people uh, who you should be loving and eat good food and go outside. And in light of today, I want to add, you know, be barefoot and be outside barefoot and dig in the dirt with your hands and get your actual hands dirty and, you know, feel, feel what the earth 
and the water of the earth has to offer and don't just experience it if you can if you live in any situation where you can don't just experience it through uh through shoes and through gloves but you know actually actually revel in the thing that is this planet that we live on be barefoot eat duck eggs awesome all right be well